The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I'm grateful for the privilege to work alongside him for all these years. And uh, he has led you to the throne. He's led me to the throne. And for that, I'm forever grateful, bro. So bless you. Bless you. Thank you. You know, we've... Uh, We've done this for a long time, and, and like I, you have seen God do a lot of work in our body and in your life. Personally, we've been through a lot of stuff together uh, in your life and my life, and uh, we've traveled some deep waters, and we've celebrated uh, joyously on many occasions. So I asked Bobby if he'd just reflect on a couple of things uh, this morning as he looks back over those 20 years. Yeah, so far I'm 0 for 2 on this, uh, this attempt, so we'll see if this hour is a little bit better. I've had to bail them out both times. I know. I, you're always carrying me. I know. It gets so old. Um, yeah, first of all, um, how grateful I am for my wife who, for some crazy reason, gave that kid a date like over 30 years ago, so I don't know what she was thinking, but... Uh, I don't either. I, <laughs> could you turn his mic off for a second? Um, and uh, for my family and for these folks that I get to worship with uh, week in, week out, you, you are a privileged body to have such a great group of folks that sacrifice week in and week out, not only because they love the Savior, but they love you guys, and they, they faithfully serve you week after week after week. Um, I was uh, also sharing earlier, tried to share earlier, um, one of, uh, I was listening to a sermon this last week, a guy named Matt Chandler, some of you guys have heard him, my second favorite pastor. <laughs> Next to Swindoll. But uh, anyway, so, so anyway, he was, um, uh, he, he was sharing about the woman at the well and uh, how she would come continuously to draw water and never be satisfied. And I think for us in life, as many of you have had many experiences and difficult circumstances, the world offers us many wells to draw from that satisfy us very temporarily. Um, but this church has been a very faithful well in my life, and um, for that I'm very grateful to all of you. So thank you for the privilege of allowing me to be a part of your church and what God's doing. Amen. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. Makes a pretty good water boy, too, and you forgot to bring my water up here, man. We're, yeah. Daniel chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Daniel chapter 8, your Bibles, your apps, turn them on, uh, spring break weekend, uh, change clock weekend, we thought we'd be by ourselves this morning, so we're grateful for you to be here, and uh, if you're new to TBC, there's a visitor center out in the hallway, we'd ask you to stop by and uh, check in with us about some of the ministry that's taking place here. We're doing the book of Daniel uh, in the, in the uh, spring, as you can tell, cultures on collision. This morning, we'll look at a message I've entitled, From Prophecy to History, From Prophecy to History. I've got a daunting task today. In fact, I'm going to show you how daunting it is. I, I mean, I've studied this passage for hours. I've, I've been praying through it. Uh, yesterday, I came up here and just spent some time uh, before the Lord and uh, thinking through uh, the goodness of this body. It's been to us, and uh, you've been in my heart. And uh, my desire really is to be just a messenger today, as, as it is week after week, but I come across a difficult passage. I'll show you how difficult it is. Daniel has a vision, and he really doesn't understand it. So look at verse 15. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Yale and called out and said, Gabriel, 
He called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Daniel doesn't understand what's happening. So God sends Gabriel, the angel, to explain it to Daniel. So this vision is so difficult to understand that an angel had to come for Daniel to understand it. Then look at verse 27, all the way to the end of the chapter. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. After he had this vision, this explanation, he's just flat worn out. And he says, then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was no one to explain it. Now, I thought Gabriel just explained the vision to Daniel. So here's my task this morning. Daniel has a vision. He can't understand it. The angel Gabriel is sent by God to explain it to Daniel, and Daniel still doesn't fully understand it. So I'm supposed to understand it, explain it to you, and we're going to walk out of here happy, right? I mean, that's my job this morning. My job is to, understand, to, to, to teach you what Gabriel could not teach Daniel and fully understand, and hopefully we'll walk out. But ultimately, uh, this is God's word, and so we're going to look at it together and dive in and see what he has to teach us. First grader went home after Sunday school. At the lunch table, the dad said, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? The son said, we learned about how Moses went behind enemy lines to rescue the Jews from the Egyptians. Moses ordered the engineers to build a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea. And after the Jewish people crossed it, he sent bombers back to blow up the bridge to take out the Egyptian tanks and to destroy the soldiers. And the father looked at him with astonishment and said, is that what your teacher really taught you? And the young boy said, no, but if I told you what she taught us, you'd never believe it. That's how a lot of people look at Daniel chapter 8. A lot of scholars, a lot of liberal scholars, a lot of folks that don't believe in the supernatural look at Daniel chapter 8 and they shake their head and say, this, this, can't, this can't be right. In fact, if you do study of the book of Daniel and those who critique it, what you'll find, there are a number of people who say, well, the book of Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel, had to be written by somebody out hundreds of years after Daniel. Even though Daniel, even right here, says it came about when I, Daniel, had this vision. So what you're going to see in this text this morning is that there's some prophecies that were spoken three to 400 years before they were fulfilled with such precision that those who don't believe in the supernatural have to say, well, this couldn't have been Daniel, couldn't have been done by Daniel, and God couldn't give that kind of information. That's ultimately what they're saying. That to read these prophecies, it would be like somebody in 1616, wrap that around your mind, in the year 1616, it's your Shakespeare died, by the way, you can look it up on Google, and uh, in 1616, if somebody prophesied about America and said, this will be the king and this is what happened in this land that's not even yet birth. That's about 400 years ago. I mean, that's what Daniel 8 is about. It's about a prophecy given to Daniel and uh, being fulfilled two to three to four, some of it 200, some of it to 400 years after he's given the prophecy by God. So here's what we're going to do this morning. When Daniel was given this vision by God, recorded for us in Daniel 8, everything was yet future. We call that prophecy. A prophet is one who foretells the truth and also forth tells the truth. Sometimes a prophet calls people to repentance that's forth telling the word of God. Sometimes he foretells, he speaks into the future about what's going to happen. This is a foretelling of what's going to happen. God gives Daniel a vision. This vision is going to take place years and years later. That's called prophecy. We have now the advantage of looking back and we can see if this prophecy was fulfilled or not. We will see it was, as you can assume. And as we look at that, we call that history. We look back. Prophecy looks forward. History looks backwards. And so what was prophesied to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, which was yet future, we look back upon as that which is historical. 
we can see with, with the, great, the great accuracy that God used to fulfill the prophecies that are here. So as I was praying yesterday and thinking about this message and had already laid it to rest, uh, I said, Lord, what is it that, that you want us to walk out learning today? And I was thinking through that, it's the sovereign hand of God controlling the history of the world should lead us as people to worship the sovereign God who's in control of the events then, the events now, and the events yet to come. I mean, I hope when you walk out today, I hope that we look at Daniel 8 and we're given a picture of the sovereign hand of God. And I hope you'll see that you hold in your hand a word that has been given to us that is so accurate that people have to try and explain it away by saying it can't possibly be true because it is so accurate. And so when you walk out, I hope you walk out saying, what a great God we have. I hope you walk out saying, he's given us a revelation that's in our hands. It's a revelation that can be trusted. And so hopefully our faith in the word of God will increase and ultimately our faith in the God of the word will increase. And remember when Daniel was written, when the nation was in exile, they were without hope. This is a chapter that gives hope and comfort and love. Remember, this, this would be read later by folks in the intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and Matthew, those 400 years, and they would be comforted through reading this word. And it's given to us, the church, and it's given to us for centuries now so that we too might understand the love and comfort of our Father. That's what prophecy does. And so let's dive in together and see if we can explain that which was almost unexplainable even to Daniel. Well, the vision is revealed in the first 14 verses. I mean, when you look at verses 1 through 14, the vision is revealed. If you were with us last week, Daniel had a daunting, disturbing dream. He dreamed in pictures, if you will. If you look at the screen in front of you, to the left last week in Daniel 7, we saw that Daniel dreamed about a lion with wings. He dreamed about a bear with three ribs in his mouth. We said those were not ribs from millers or chefs or cleanse, but those were nations. We saw that there was a leopard with four heads and wings. And then we saw this uh, audacious beast of some kind that uh, can't even be explained. And it had 10 horns on it. And out of those 10 horns arose some other horns and finally a little horn that represented, we saw in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist. And those horns arose from, they represented different nations. The first was the Babylonian, then the Medo-Persian nation, then the Greek nation, then the Roman nation. And that little horn rose out of the Roman nation. Yesterday, I put on my Facebook status, I said, uh, come to Temple Bible Church uh, where we will have a ram devouring, a trampling, a, uh, a ram trampled by a flying goat. So this morning, that's what we're going to learn about. We're going to learn about a ram and a flying goat. I, I mean, when you read the passage before us today, uh, that's what it's about. You, you pick up and, well, before we get there, I, I think we have to ask a question. I feel like I need a John Madden teleprompter right now. I, I mean, I feel like, you know, wham, sham, bam, boom. And I, I mean, I feel like when I get ready to read this, that's what we need. But I want to ask you a question before we even get to the scripture. Why? But why did God reveal to Daniel this kind of stuff? I was a history major, an undergraduate degree. I went to a school called LSU, which doesn't know how to play basketball. <laughs> and uh, you can ask, when I was a history major, I mean, you'd walk in and, uh, you know, they would talk about dates and they would talk about places and they would talk about battles and they would talk about famous figures. And you would walk out and, you know, your mind would be loaded with all these dates and names and places and Quite frankly, I don't have a mind that can capture all that stuff and retain all that stuff just by hearing all that stuff. Some of you do. 
Some of you do. You can hear that stuff and you can just retain it. You don't have to take notes and you got it. We want you to know we hate you if you're that kind of person. No, just kidding. I mean, this is before you couldn't go home and watch a lecture online. I mean, you either got it or you did and you're taking notes and you found somebody who took better notes than you. And you had to remember all these dates and numbers and all this stuff. But God could have done that to Daniel. He said, Daniel, this kingdom is this, and this is the day that's going to happen. This is the kings are going to rule over it, and this and this and this. But if you have visions like this, you're going to remember it. You're going to remember it. Remember, revelation is God speaking to us so that we might know him. And ultimately, it's speaking to us so that we might know a savior. See, in Hebrews chapter 1, this is how the author of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. You see, God spoke to the prophets in a lot of different ways. To some it was through dreams, to some it was through visions. Through some it was direct revelation, God speaking into the hearts of those prophets, the minds of those prophets. Uh, for, for, for others, it's, you know, Balaam's donkey spoke to him. For others, it's angels speaking to them, Gabriel speaking here, Gabriel speaking to Mary later. And so we find exactly what Hebrews 1 says, that God spoke to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But listen to what it says in verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. See, the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. And so God spoke to the prophets in a lot of ways, but ultimately the ultimate revelation, the specific revelation given to us to understand what the Father is like is the Son, because he goes on and says, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so God speaks and has spoken in many different ways. Revelation is God's desire to reveal himself to mankind so that we might know him. What you hold in your hands is God's revelation given to you so you might know him. And ultimately, the fulfillment of that revelation is Jesus. Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills all the revelation that was given. So Daniel has these wild dreams, these wild visions, and so that he can remember exactly what it is that God wanted to speak to him and through him to the people in exile, to him at that time, and to us in the future. So... Gary, where do you get these pictures from? I mean, what does all this mean and how's it come, come about? Well, Daniel chapter 8, let's pick up in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, he's the king of Babylon, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Medes and Persians, the, the king of uh, vision, uh, let me back up, he's the king of Babylon, the, he, he's a vision given uh, to Daniel, Daniel subsequent to the one that appeared to me previously. So in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision, he says, this one's given to me a little later. I looked at the vision that came about while I was looking. I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa would become the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. It's yet to become a world power. This is yet future. Susa was 250 miles away from where Daniel was at this time in Babylon. So Daniel, in this vision, is transported to see a city that is not yet that famous. It would become that way. It becomes a royal city of the Medes and Persians. It was in existence, but it wasn't that significant at the time that Daniel has his vision. So Daniel in verse 3, I looked, lifted my gaze and I looked and behold a ram who had two horns was standing in front of the canal. So that's where I get the ram from. You've got this ram with two horns and he's standing in front of a canal. Now the two horns were long. So it's a ram with two long horns. One was longer than the other and the longer one came up last. 
Well, if you were with us last week, uh, it was the same thing with this bear on its side, one side was bigger than the other. So now we have a ram, another picture, with two horns, but one horn is bigger than the other, and it's the last horn that's bigger than the first horn. Well, in the empire of the Medes and Persians, the Medes came along first, the Persians came along second, they became a greater nation, and so they became the longer horn. And it says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. You say, well, how do you know that's the Medo-Persian Empire? I mean, you read the Bible and he's talking about rams. How do you know that? I mean, where, where do you get that from? Are you just inventing things? Well, the best commentary in the scriptures are what? Scriptures. Remember, Daniel says, I need help to understand this. So Gabriel gives him some help. Drop down to verse 20 in Daniel chapter 8. The ram which you saw, Daniel, with the two horns represents whom? Who does it represent? The kings of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel, when you see this ram, this ram standing next to the canal, and you see these two horns, one greater than the other, and the greater horn would be the Persians because they came later and they became stronger and bigger. Uh, this represents the kings of Media Persia. So you with me so far? I mean, that's pretty easy to understand so far. Isn't it? I mean, we, we see this vision, we know who they are, the scriptures explain it to us. So Daniel goes on, verse five. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. So this goat's not touching the ground. We have a flying goat on our hands at this point in time, okay? So we have a ram with two horns, one longer than the other. Now we've got a flying goat. I don't know if you've ever seen a flying goat. I haven't, but I can't imagine anything that might be more frightening than a goat who's not touching the ground and coming from a direction. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So you remember unicorns? Uh, you remember the old song in the 60s? We had green alligators and long neck babies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you ain't gonna see no unicorn, they're not here. Uh, but this is a goat that looked like a unicorn. It's got one conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which had been standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in blighty wrath. So you get this ram minding its own business, if you will, two horns, one greater than the other, one longer than the other, but all of a sudden you've got this flying goat coming at him, and this flying goat rushes at him in mighty wrath, and he says, I saw him, that is the flying goat, he came beside the ram, he was enraged at him, he struck the ram, he shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, and hurled him to the ground, and he trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. So this flying goat with the one long horn in between those eyes conquers the ram. So the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. Who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire? The Greeks did. The Greeks did. This is still decades and decades and decades away. This still isn't on the map. And yet God is very clear in his instruction. Then look at what happened in verse 8. The male goat magnificently magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. This big conspicuous horn in the middle of his head broke it off. I mean, all of a sudden you go, bam, he's gone. And in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. So you've got the picture. I mean, this flying goat attacks this ram, defeats the ram, uh, and he has one horn in the middle. That horn is broken off and four horns come up in its place. So four horns come up where there was one horn and all of a sudden you've got that taking place. And then look at verse nine. And out of one of them, out of one of the horns, 
came forth a rather small horn. We're back to little horns now. We've talked a lot about horns in the last few. You deer hunters ought to be really excited. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. And we're thinking, what in the world is happening here? And this little horn, look at verse 10, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trample them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. He's saying, I'm equal with God, basically. And it removed the regular sacrifices from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So whoever this little horn in goes into the temple and stops the whole sacrificial system. And then in verse 12, on account of the transgressions, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and its prosper. So whoever this little horn is that pops up from one of the other four horns is somebody that stops the sacrifices in the temple it, it lays waste to Jerusalem, if you will, in some ways, and uh, goes up against God. And then I heard, verse 13, two angels talking. So Daniel eavesdrops on two angels, one saying to the other, ask the question, how long will the vision about this regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? How long before we can sacrifice again? And he said to him, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. You with me? Daniel has a vision. Vision has taken place initially 250 miles to the east in a place called Susa. Um, Visions interpreted by Gabriel. Look at verse 15. Came about when I had this vision, I wanted to understand it. Behold, staying next to me, as I read earlier, was one to look like a man. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the UL, called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And uh, so Gabriel spends to explain to Daniel. Let me talk about angels for one second. Gabriel's an angel. There are two angels named in the Bible. Gabriel, who's the other one? Michael. Two angels named in the Bible. The, the purpose of angels, as I see in the scriptures, are twofold. They are messengers of God and they're protectors of God's people. So just, to, just to, you know, they do other things, but primarily... Angels are messengers of God. They bring messages from God to man. A great example is Gabriel here to Daniel, but also Gabriel to Mary when she was found to be with the child. And they're also protectors of God's people. We see angels throughout the scriptures protecting the people of God. <clears throat> so they have, their, their primary roles are dual. They have dual roles. Gabriel, Michael, the angels. That's what they do. Whenever you preach and teach the word of God, sometimes you wonder what people really understand. And a lot of you preach and teach or teach our kids. And you ever wonder, what do they really understand when you teach our youth, when you teach our, our uh, nursery kids and teach our primary kids? What do you understand? Well, somebody asked from some eight, nine, ten-year-olds what an angel is. And so it, here's, here's what they understand when we teach them. Uh, angels work for God and watch over kids when God has something else to do. I mean, that's what they're hearing. Uh, here's another one. My guardian angel helps me with math, but he's not really good in science. I had that guardian angel. I, I could put my name there. Um, when an angel gets mad, he takes a deep breath, counts to 10, and when he lets out his breath, somewhere there's a tornado. <laughs> I've always wondered how tornadoes took place, didn't you? I've had it happen. And then the uh, final one, it's not easy to become an angel. First you die, then you go to heaven, then there's a flight train you go through, and, and then you got to agree to wear those angel clothes. <laughs> I, I mean, sometimes we wonder what we... People really understand when we teach and preach the word of God. 
Here's Daniel being explained by Gabriel what happened. And Daniel at the end says, hey, there's nobody here to explain this to me. Help me understand. Daniel's given a prophecy. Everything is yet future. We look back historically. The, the other thing that gives me great hope, preaching the word of God, uh, look at verse 17. So Gabriel came near to where I was standing. And when he became, uh, when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But Gabriel said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the end of time. Now, while Gabriel was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. That gives me great hope. If Daniel fell asleep when Gabriel was preaching to him, I have great hope when I preach to you. I mean, can you imagine Gabriel and angels standing in front of you and you just knock out? I mean, I, I, when, I, when I studied this this week, I just started laughing when I read it. Daniel, really? I mean, really? You, you've got this wild vision. If I had the vision you had, I probably won't want to sleep again. I would not want to sleep again after all that you've been dreaming about. So I, I've got great hope when I preach the word of God. He touched me and he made me stand upright. He just kind of bummed, hey, Daniel, wake up. I'm still talking. So what we see here, the vision revealed. We say, Gary, how do you know the Greek empire was next? Well, look at verse 21. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes. Remember that conspicuous horn in the middle of his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn, the four horns that rise in its place, represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So who is the first king? We, we see the medial Persian is the ram, and we see that the flying goat represents the, the, uh, the, the Greek empire. Well, who was the first king of the Greek empire? His name is Alexander the Great. He, he was the greatest king of all. In fact, he's the guy who, he's in his late 20s, he sat down and cried because there were no more kingdoms for him to conquer. Alexander the Great. Died at 32, I think it was. And so his horn is broken when he dies. So you would think if the scripture is going to be fulfilled, there will be four kingdoms that rise out of the Greek kingdom, right? Well, if you study Greek history, da-da, how many kingdoms come out? Four. There are four generals that divide up Alexander the Great's empire. If you look in front of you, or maybe from the very back, if you want to see the names that are up there, but the point is, uh, there was a general named Ptolemy, a general named Lysimachus, a general named Seleucus, and a general named Cassander. And so these four guys divided up Alexander the Great's empire to fulfill the word of God. When Daniel spoke these words, these were about three to 400 years away from happening, and he spoke them with great accuracy because God is the one who gave him that vision. He spoke prophetically, we look at it historically. We say, wow, what a great God who can control human history to bring about all that he prophesies and all that he speaks about. So what about this little horn? I mean, the focus is the little horn. I mean, over and over in this section, you read about this little horn, this little horn. It magnified itself, verse 11, to be equal with the commander of the host. So this is a powerful person who interrupts worship in the temple. This is a powerful person who the angels are saying, how long is this going to last? It's going to last 2,300 days. And when you begin to study the book of Daniel, what you recognize is that there is a person who fulfilled that. The earth ruler, the eighth ruler, and the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid was a group that uh, one of the generals there. And he ruled over, the Seleucid Empire ruled over Syria and Israel. The eighth ruler of that came into power in 163, 162 BC. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He became the leader of that empire by murdering his brother. His brother was the rightful heir to the throne. He had his brother murdered so he could take the throne. 
When he took the throne, he literally declared war on the Jews in Jerusalem. And when he took the throne, he began to extinguish the Jews, much like Hitler did in the Holocaust. Over 100,000 Jews were murdered during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. The ultimate thing that he did to disgrace the Jewish people was to desecrate the temple, just as it says here. What he did is he brought a pig into the temple and had it butchered as a sacrifice on the altar of God. If you know the Old Testament scriptures, you know that a pig was considered unclean, the lowest of the low, the prodigal son, is slopping with the hogs. And you remember what it says about that. He recognized how far away he was from his father. And Antiochus Epiphanes killed over 100,000 Jews, forbade them to practice their faith. I'll read to you historically. He even threatened them with capital punishment that attempted to circumcise their children. On December 16, 167, he commanded the Jews to offer unclean sacrifices and to eat pig's flesh or be penalized by death. He made the possession of the Hebrew scriptures a capital offense. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes means the manifest one, the illustrious one. The Jews called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the madman. He was a madman. His reign of terror and his acts of sacrilege did not last very long. They lasted approximately... Look at verse 14. How long do you think they lasted? Pretty interesting. When you look at the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the period from 171 BC, when peaceful relationships between him and the Jews came to an end, and uh, he was cast out of power, December of 163. He was cast out of power by a rebellion led by a gentleman named Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus led a group of Jews. They went into, the, into Jerusalem. They defeated him and his army. And uh, they resumed the daily sacrifices to God in the temple. Every year, the Jewish communities in our day and age, they've got a special day called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the day they celebrate when Judas Maccabeus reinstituted the sacrificial system back in the temple in 160-something B.C. The restoration of Israel's worship took place three years and 55 days after his administrators had abolished the offering of the sacrifices to the God of Israel. And what we see is the word of God down to the day is accurate. And all I can do is say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. As I'm in my office studying the scriptures, I'm saying that's a God who controls the hand of history. That's a God who comforts his people. That's a God who loves his people. He's a God of comfort and a God of love to all of us. And so you come to a difficult chapter and you still see the thumbprint of God everywhere. He's a good God. He's a good God. This week we decided that would be a great theme for us to look at this section. The goodness of of our God, in fulfilling what was prophesied in the past, in comforting us in the present, and giving us hope for the future. But it doesn't stop there. I want to point out two things to you. First of all, I've circled my Bible at the end of verse 4, talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. He did as he pleased and magnified himself. I've circled the words magnified himself. I've drawn a line down to verse 8. The male goat representing the Greek empire, magnified himself exceedingly. 
I've drawn a circle around the words magnified himself and I've connected it to verse 11 where it says, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Three times, what we, that's referring to the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. Three times what we see over and over, magnifying self, magnifying self, magnifying self. We see leaders and nations filled with pride. They're filled with pride. And the scriptures say pride comes before the fall. And when we look at this, it's no mistake that God gives to us in the inspired scriptures three times he describes these nations as those that magnified themselves. You know, if we're honest, it's a battle for all of us. Sometimes we want to magnify ourselves. Sometimes we want the limelight. We want to be the one who gets the recognition. We want to be the one who speaks about our successes. And I confess to you, there are times I battle that. That if, if we allow ourselves to do that, we rob glory from God. One author has said, pride and religion can coexist. Pride and worship cannot. When you worship God and come before God, when you're in his presence, how can you possibly be prideful? See, I, I've described for you, I've used this illustration before, there's cat theology and dog theology when it comes to this. Here's what cat theology teaches. Cat theology teaches, you feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter and provide for all my needs. I must be wonderful. How many of you have cats? Can you relate to that? Do you got a cat? Let me see your hand. I mean, that's what a cat does. You feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter, you provide everything. I've got all this stuff. I'm wonderful. Look at what you've done for me. Dog theology is really the way that we should be. I like the way this illustration goes to dogs and cats, but I mean, dog theology is you feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter, you provide for all my needs. You must be wonderful. So guys, as you live your life, you don't live it like a cat. You don't say, hey, look at all that's been given to me. Look at all that's been done for me. Look at everything that's been provided for me. I must be somebody. But you live your life and say, all you've done for me, all you've given me, all you've provided for me, you're wonderful. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's not because of me, it's because of you. So the one thing I want to point out is there's no room in the spiritual life that we live for pride. Second thing I want to point out, this prophecy, I believe, has a double entendre, two intentions. It's not only to look at Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy who's going to come about in the 100s, but it's looking ahead to someone else who's going to plague the Jews and fight the Jews and fight God's people and fight us. That's the Antichrist. So Gary, now where do you get that stuff? I mean, you've already showed us, you know, the Greeks and the, Ro the media Persians and the Romans. Well, pick up with me in verse 23. Already we've seen in verse 11 that whoever this person is, this commander of the host, is going to go up against God himself. Well, before we go to verse 23, let me point out to you, when Gabriel speaks to Daniel, look at the end of verse 17, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to when? The time of the end. Daniel, this, is, this, this refers to end times. And then in verse 19, he says, uh, Daniel, I, I want you to know, uh, I'm going to let you know these things will occur in the final period. 
Those words are used in Daniel chapter 12 to refer to the turn of Christ. And so he's saying, Daniel, these things are going to happen in the media Persian Empire, in the Greek Empire, but Daniel, these things are about end times. This is about prophecy. It's about not just the end times now, it's about the end times yet future. And so we pick up in verse 23 with the description of this little horn. I mean, in verse 22, he said, these four horns are broken, this little one rises up, and it says regarding this little horn in verse 23, in the latter period of their rule. So he's talking about latter times. When the transgressions have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. So whoever this is will have mighty power, but it's given to him, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. So he's gone against not only Jewish people, but other people as well. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. There's our word magnify once again. Okay, magnified, magnified, little horn magnifies himself. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And then look at the rest of it. He will oppose the prince of princes, and he will be broken without human agency. Whoever defeats this little horn ultimately is God. So who is it that defeated Antiochus Epiphanes and the rule of the Greeks? It was the Romans. It wasn't, you know, God himself. But we do know that ultimately when Antichrist comes that God will be victorious. So, Antichrist. In 1 John chapter 2, we read these words in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour in times. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. So when Daniel received this vision and Gabriel explained it, he said, this has to do with the times of the end. This has to do when final days will be over. When John writes, he says, I want you to know that Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have come. We might call that the spirit of Antichrist. And my friends, if you look at human history, many have exemplified the spirit of Antichrist. I think of somebody like Hitler. I think of Rwanda in 1994, when over one million people were literally butchered within a three-month period. 90% died by machete. I think of Boko Haram in our day and age, taking and raping young girls, putting them in a harem and killing multiple ones. I think of ISIS beheading Christians. I think of extreme terrorism and what happens in our world. And we might say today evil has its day. Evil has its day. Satan is called the prince of this world. Evil has its day. But what I've learned from the scriptures is that certainly evil will have its day, but ultimately God will have his say. The evil evil will have its day. Babylonians rise up and evil has its day. Medo-Persians rise up and evil has its day. And the Greeks rise up and evil has its day. And the Romans rise up and evil has its day. And the Messiah comes to our planet, Jesus himself, the Son of God. And he's rejected and murdered and crucified. Evil has its day. Then we fast forward to history through through Hitler and the Holocaust and evil has its day. And we come to Boko Haram and ISIS and 
the world we live in and evil has its day. Just pick up the newspaper and read it today. Get online and look at the headlines. Evil has its day. But I'm convinced prophecy is given to us for hope. It's given to us to see the care and comfort and love of our God. So while evil will have its day, God will ultimately have a say. And so I fast forward in the scriptures as I'm studying this to Revelation 19. When it comes to Revelation 19, here's what I read. We're in end times now. There's going to be a battle. This person named Antichrist is going to be defeated. But many more things are going to happen. This is verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he's clothed with a robe that's dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Evil has its day. But God will have a say. And that chapter, that section closes and says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name. And the name written on it is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And evil has its day. But God, through the triumphant risen Savior, has his say. And wickedness and evil and all that is wrong in the world is righted by God. And evil has its day. But ultimately, when you read the end of the book, God has his say. And so we look at the world we live in as Daniel looked at his world filled with chaos, a nation in exile, and God gives them a word of comfort. And we have way more than that. So when we look at the world we live in, we can be grateful, and we can have peace replace fear and worry and anxiety because the same God who spoke that word to Daniel and it came to pass, the same God who says one day, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will make all things right. And I say glory, hallelujah, praise God. Amen? Father, you're a good God. It's who you are. It's who you are. And Lord, there are many people filled with worry and fear and anxiety in our world, many of us in this room right now. Dear God, help us to see that the same God who has controlled the hands of the universe in eternity past, in Daniel chapter 8, that was yet future for 400 years, the same God who today rules over us. Thank you for being a sovereign God. Thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for being a good God. As we see historically what unfolded, what was prophesied by Daniel, it thrills us to see your greatness thrills us to see that you can accomplish your purposes. And so we bow before you.
we honor you. We look forward to the time when the triumphant risen Savior will ride upon that horse and we'll see displayed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Bless you.